Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. What does it mean for legal analysis to connect humans to God? Can spiritual teachings remain meaningful at the same time rigidly codified? Can a modern state be governed by such law? In his panoramic new book, Kaim Simon, traces how generations of rabbis have used concepts forged in Talmudic disputation to do the work that other societies assign not only to philosophy, political theory, theology, and ethics, but also to art, drama, and literature. In this multifaceted world of halakha, where everything is law, law is also everything, and even laws that serve no practical purpose can, when properly studied, provide surprising insights into timeless questions about the very nature of human existence. The book is Halakha, the rabbinic idea of law, and the author, Chaim Simon, is coming back for the third time to the podcast. I give you Chaim Simon. Chaim, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be back. So the first time I think you were on the podcast, we talked about Star Wars and the spiritual, not religious, which was awesome, among many, many other things. And today we're going to talk about your new book, which is great. Now, now make sure I'm pronouncing it right. Halakha? Halak? Halakha. 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 That's pretty good. You got the ch down. Yeah, exactly. For, it's, a, it's a Goya shepherd here. You're going uh, native. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, the, the, it's funny that um, Jonah Goldberg, on the, you know, the National Review Conservative, he has this podcast. He said, you know, I'm the... I'm the, like the Shabbos, uh, Shabbos Goy for NPR because I'll be a conservative critical of Trump. <laughs> but so halacha, the the rabbinic idea of law, and so you your field. I mean, you teach religion and law, but you also just teach like your law school professor. You teach, yeah, contracts, teach contracts. You teach. I've got a stack of insurance law exams. I got a grade. So give me your professional opinion. How good a lawyer is Michael uh, Avenatti? <laughs> <laughs> he said that when somebody said to him uh, on MSNBC, I mean, no offense, but you're no Bob Mueller. And he said, I think I am a Bob Mueller. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I, I, I would not share that assessment. Uh, <laughs> so he's, your book, he's made some curious moves lately. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so you're you're writing from the from a kind of two perspectives. I mean, from an observant Jew and somebody that thinks about religion and law and also as a legal scholar that teaches, you know, people of all faiths and are no faith at all uh, law. So you kind of have a twin perspective here and you're, you're, you're taking, it seems to me like Halakha is as kind of a misunderstood concept, right? I I mean, that's, that's, you kind of open the book with that premise. I think that's right. Um, It's, it's a hard concept in large part because it doesn't neatly match on to other ideas that we have in our society. And that's kind of one of the, where I start from. So, you know, as a law professor, I know what more or less what law is, what people think law is. Um, and uh, halacha is almost always translated as Jewish law, certainly in the last hundred years when we translate to English. And the second we do that, um, we bring up images of what we think, you know, a legal system is. And certainly living in the you know West, broadly defined, uh, we, we start going that direction. Um, but because, you know, I know I have a different experience with halacha as well. I know that that's a little bit true, and there's a lot of good reasons why you would call halacha Jewish law, but it's also distorting. And part of what I'm trying to do in this book is to is to bring that out. Uh, the other thing is a lot of academic books on halacha are almost always written uh, from the perspective of a religious studies or a Jewish studies department, which often has a much more historical uh, flavor to it, and, and um and it's interested in sort of development and text criticism and history. Uh, and part of this is just to imagine sort of what looking at Jewish law or halacha is from the, pers- as you said, from the perspective of a lawyer and a, and a legal scholar, as opposed to a, you know, a scholar in a humanities setting in a religious studies department. And, and you begin strangely, interestingly, with Jesus and Paul and saying, hey, maybe did they have it right here? And, and, the, and you say that, you know, in the New Testament, you get this these conflicts with 
G- with Jesus and and the Jewish religious leaders, time often called Pharisees or sometimes scribes, or you know, in the in the New Testament text. But he says that sometimes they they sh- they point out that that halacha seems uh, the law seems seems restrictive or legalistic or punitive or or you know kind of uh, you know very nitpicky. And you say, look, there is a critique here. You know, any kind of uh, legal theory can be can 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 be misapplied like that but 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 broadly speaking you th- you kind of argue that now it is a much bigger thing than law like we think of it because it right it 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 it's it it's a, it's an entry point for thinking about the cosmos for thinking about food for thinking about for doing theology for life together it's not just it's not just a legal code so that that's right and and you're right to point out um that wow, it's kind of surprising that you started a book on halacha with uh, with Jesus and Paul of all people. But um, I, I really think that's important for a bunch of reasons and, that you mentioned. Uh, but I'd start with you know this thing we call halacha when it it, it first appears on the scene, um, you know, in, in the form of of a document or a body of work called the Mishnah, which um, is generally said to have been you know publicized around the year two hundred. So uh, you know, but it clearly um, contains material that before that, including people who live, um, you know, maybe around the time of Jesus, uh, maybe a couple of them, the early ones, and certainly a generation or two later. And, and that's the, the first document of what we call, uh, halacha. And I find it fascinating that, you know, almost before that project is getting off the ground, or just as that project is happening, um, you know, in the precursors to the Mishnah, you've got Jesus out there and, and then Paul um, sort of critiquing the Pharisees and the scribes who are the forerunners of the rabbis of the Mishnah on 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 the same questions that will recur so many times in history by by both Christian and uh, and Jewish inter- you know, by external Christian uh, critiques, you know, more anti-Semitic, less anti-Semitic in good faith and less good faith in some places. And then, you know, internal Jewish critiques. Um, you know, a lot of people read uh, Jesus is not so different from the critique that Reformed Judaism lodged against uh, rabbinic Judaism in the 19th and then the 20th centuries. And I thought it was fascinating the two points one that this split between these these traditions um so typically thought of in terms of you know the incarnation and 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 much more kind of quote theological concepts and, and that's all true as well but but the earliest stages of that in the gospels you see are really about law and legalism and then just how much that that strand of critique is always going to sort of accompany halacha and that's why i thought it's important to to start there and also to say look um you know what he's saying is not wholly wrong uh either about halacha or about any system legal system sorry that's going to uh you know have lots of legal rules and be very precise about its categories and stress uh, and stress sort of maintaining those categories and boundaries is inevitably going to run into some of the problems that they're they're addressing and a lot of modern legal theory you know debates between um, you know that go on on the Supreme Court and, and, and things like that today uh, are, are variations of this question and to locate all of that at the kind of birth of Christianity and the and the, the sort of first, sort of uh, presence of, of, of this discourse that becomes to be known as halakha, to me is, is fascinating. And I was surprised how that story wasn't really told. Yeah, I, we talked previously, you wrote a really interesting piece about Jesus and, and Jewish law. And in the end of it, you, you made this great point. It's sort of it's so insightful that, that in contemporary legal theory, you might say put Jesus and Paul roughly to be anachronistic and weird, but you you might put them sort of with the liberals on the Supreme Court, right? And you'd put the Pharisees as a little more, or the or the, or the rabbinical as as a little more the textual based, um, right? The conservatives, yes. but but it's funny that most conservative religious people that are Christians want to read the statutes more rabbinically than like Jesus or Paul. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, I, I think you can also explain why that analogy is imperfect, but certainly if we look at the legal method, um, you know, Jesus is, is sort of criticizing the Pharisees of having a too closed, you know, too narrow conception of what the law is and what influences it. 
Um, and the Pharisees, though they of course don't really speak or speak authentically in their voice in the in the New Testament, are saying, "Well, no, you know, the way you know you're being authentic to the to the to the law is by following it in a fairly literal fashion." Uh, and and that has very interesting resonances to to modern uh, you know legal and political debates for sure. And the truth is, is that you know that as you noted, that article that I wrote a while ago is kind of folded in and reformatted uh, in the in the first chapter of the book. Uh, which does ask the question, you know, was Jesus right? And my answer is, is that sort of Jesus misses, um, or that line of critique misses, uh, is correct, and I, I would say this is correct in identifying uh, a lot of features of halakha and maybe all legal systems that stress kind of, you know, fairly tight categories and, and rules like that. But it misses these other things halakha is doing. And um, that's sort of what the rest of the book about why that's at the front end is to say we're going to look at all the ways in which halakha does the the line i like to use it does the work that in other societies we would imagine theology doing political theory doing maybe even uh, you know art music dramatic uh dramatic arts and and like cultural criticism and that that the law or more appropriately the halakha becomes the format through which you know rabbinic judaism particularly anchored in the talmud but then flowing thereafter uh, does that stuff but it's always or often using the kind of legal architecture the legal framework to do that and that's a really i think i had to write the book because that's a really hard concept for us as kind of people living today because we tend to think that law is not that. And we like to divide between law and maybe literature and maybe theology and all these other things. And there's good reasons why in the modern West we would do that. Uh, but that shouldn't prevent us from, from kind of getting a deeper appreciation for what's going on in Jewish law or in halacha. Do you think there's like a, is there a twofold aspect to this? Like one is just in general in pre-modern society, a lot of these concepts are probably more integrated than they are in a modern, you know, sort of pluralistic society. I wonder the other, how much also does this have to do with when Jews as a people, when when you, when the temple's destroyed, when, you know, and even post-exile, you're, you know, having less sort of govern, government sovereign control and that stuff, and then living a sort of exilic existence where, you, where a people that survive without a state. I mean, it's just some people, I mean, I don't think people think how remarkable that is. Like, it, 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 does this become the sort of does it become this uh, this sort of uh, inclusive cultural and meaning making thing because it it, it sort of it, it fills in for these other things that you would have if you if you were not in a, in an exilic sort of diaspora existence. Right. So those are those are really really good questions. Um, let's start with the second one. So so you're right that. Um, the, the relation between the state and governance and the law is really important to legal systems. And that's sort of the, the, the sensitivity I bring as a law professor. And you're right that a lot of the book is sort of saying, hey, halakha as a kind of complete system of governance never really kind of fulfills its, its ideal because uh, of the exile. So there's there's structures and laws about the temple, about the Sanhedrin, about the court system, about you know lands that prim- uh, laws that primarily apply in the land of Israel, about the king and the monarchy and the political structures that that you know by the time that halakha is being articulated, those things are in the past. Um, and, you know, I call that non-applied law. And part of the book is trying to understand that's a funny thing that, that sounds funny to us moderns, um, because what do you mean non-applied law? And, you know, the, the theory you're raising is that, well, halakha can do all these things precisely because it's not always regulating. Uh, that's a really interesting uh, observation. Uh, and, of course, depends on what you think the role of halakha ought to be. In the modern state of Israel, for example, uh, what happens when Acha begins to govern again? Now, the point is not that Acha doesn't govern; it's just that it doesn't only do that and doesn't do that completely. So, I think that there's a lot of truth there that that it it might be able to take on these many roles uh, as a kind of discursive exercise, as a as a you know deliberative exercise, because um, it's not always needing to be the kind of um, hard edge of legal governance. In fact, in the book, I show that when Jewish communities need that, they kind of create a system I call sub-halacha, which is sort of drawn from halachic principles, but but kind of operates in parallel uh, to the kind of formal laws of the Talmud. 
Uh, and, you know, I talk a lot about that. Now, to your other question, which I think is is important, which is, you know, how much is this a, a function of modern, you know, modern way of looking things versus a more integrated? Uh, so I think that that's certainly right, that um, there's a way to think of this modern thing we call law as being separate from religion, separate from philosophy, uh, separate from, you know, the communal sort of, you know, own narrative uh, as being right. And in fact, uh, you know, legal scholars have been akin to, uh, you know, onto this as well. Um, however, I would say that even viewed in ancient terms, halakha, and this is another kind of major theme of the book, halakha has something that that certainly doesn't exist in the West, in, in kind of Christian-inflected uh, countries. And even in Islamic uh, society, which is in many ways, structurally more similar to Judaism doesn't. And that's the idea that the rabbis call Talmud Torah, which means the study of Torah. Now, what that is, or a way to think about that, is an idea that the study of law, and I would say even law that's not functional, so also to know what to do about the laws of Shabbat and kosher and whatnot, but also about the laws of the ancient Sanhedrin and the, and, and the monarchy and things like that, that the study of that law is a mitzvah, is a commandment, and in some kind of strains of the theology, the central commandment of Judaism and the central way that humans engage God. That is really different, I think. Usually to Christian ears, that sounds like bizarre. Uh, but I think I find it very hard to explain the phenomenon of the Talmud and of Jewish law without that, because otherwise, like, what is going on here? So once you think that this is not just a, you know, in our terms, a legal practice, but a devotional practice and a practice that's designed to bring you closer to God. So, so that's why I think law doesn't quite work, because, you know, whatever we think about modern law, it's not that. Uh, Right, right. No, we can all agree on that. Nobody has a devotional relationship to the U.S. federal code or something. That's right. You know, now people talk about a kind of constitutional devotionism, but but that's not, I find that, you know, to kind of maybe some very big, broad ideas. But what happens in in the Talmud is we get into real, real uh, small details and legal specifics. And I think that's a little bit of the background to, to understand, you know, those, even those early conversations between Jesus and the Pharisees where they're saying like, well, you're not doing what's right and they're arguing back and forth but that sort of argument and legal dialectic is really what the talmud is um and what has sustained and nurtured jewish identity like you said in the absence of statehood for a very long time um you know i think until the modern era that is the you know broadly defined you know halakha including other things in the talmud is is at least one main pillar of of sort of jewish uh cultural life and exposition and making sense of that without say without this idea of that the study of law is a form of religious devotion and done for devotional concerns um doesn't make any sense but because that idea is so far into the modern ear um i think it needs to be spelled out and that's what i'm trying to do so like how do you get a system that on the one hand is not so different from what we think law is does regulate behavior tells you what the laws of kosher are what the laws of shabbat are and sometimes even the laws of what we call communal organization are so, you know, on the other hand it's studied in devotional uh method for for devotional purposes and that the study of it becomes a central focus of religious practice and, and holding all that together is hard for us moderns. And that's really what the book's about. Yeah. It's interesting. A mutual friend of ours told me that one of his professors said that Christianity was a relationship of creed and Judaism, a relationship of deed. But I think your book more makes the argument that the creed is folded into the deed, into the study of Torah. So that, that it's not that it's not creedal or confide or there aren't theological beliefs. It's that they're, interwoven with study of, of Torah and, 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 and Talmud, these things, that, that Halakha does this, all of this. So it's not, so I, that's an interesting point that you make. I think that like, so how would you translate, if you weren't going to translate Halakha law, like what would you, what would be an alternative translation that well, would actually be less prejudicial, you think? Well, a, a little bit also depends on how we translate law. Um, within the legal academy, there are, visions and views of law that are pretty reductionistic. It's like, here are the rules that you got to follow. And if you don't, you know, uh, the, the, the courts and the police and the state are going to enforce it. But there's another vision of law, not surprisingly, often, you know, 
drawn by people, uh, drawn up by people who have at least some exposure to the rabbinic canon says, no, you know, law is really just a part of society and a reflection of society and a way society expresses itself. Um, one of the most famous scholars to make this argument was Robert Cover, a professor at Yale Law School who passed away far too young a number of years ago. And what's interesting is that Cover, uh, though I wouldn't say was a radically, you know, very deeply learned Jew, but was a Jew and did in his legal scholarship engage in Talmudic materials to make this point. It's a little bit significant for my field because he was a, Yale, a professor at Yale, the, the kind of probably most well-known law school in the country. And he wrote this article in the Harvard Law Review, the most famous law review in the country. And this is in 1982. And he brings in these rabbinic materials. And before that, they hadn't really been used that way. And that really opened the door, not just for his ideas, but for this canon of materials to be part of the American American legal discourse. So I think anyone doing this uh, you know, certainly owes uh, a debt of gratitude to a lot of people, but to cover for sort of making it kosher to uh, to discuss this, and this ought to be part of our, you know, our, our canon when we're thinking about law generally. And it's not surprising that cover who has this very expansive world-building, world-creating view of American law right, is influenced and is drawing this from Jewish law. Now, you can say maybe he got American law wrong, and some people have, but, you know, he's certainly onto something important uh, in Jewish law. It's interesting. When you think of, like, I heard Roger Scruton give a talk once. I think it was given at Vanderbilt or something, but I heard a recording of it in iTunes. And he was saying it was on uh, it was on basically uh, religious freedom and, and the nature of it in the West. And he's saying that one of the side points he made was that most religions do three things when we look at them. They do they, they there's a doctrinal, theological, metaphysical component. You know, their beliefs about reality. There's a social cohesion component, right? Like a and, and usually some kind of ethical, moral component. And he said, you know, there are certain religions that are very doctrinal and not prescriptive and not very ritually prescriptive. You could think of certain kinds of evangelical Protestantism, right? Where mm -hmm. you you have a lot of beliefs about the Bible, God, this, and that. But then the, the you know some worship in a movie theater, some worship a traditional, but you know there's not right. as much rich and, and other things are maybe. Uh, you know, mo you know, more focused on one or the other. But it seems like part of your argument is that is that the the ethical and the doctrinal and the social are all woven into halacha, right? Like they're all they're all the, the, these things. You know, the, the, to to try to look at it and say, well, it's one and three. No, they're all woven into that uh, reality in Judaism. That, that's right. And and look, like the term law, the term halacha can sustain a number of different interpretations. For example, we could say there is a law, right? And we we're imagining now, you know, a certain section of the U.S. bankruptcy code, right? We could also say law in this much broader sense of like you know the the constituent rules that that hold society together. And then, you know, if you're of the natural law persuasion, you could say law and you mean some kind of meta concepts that, that hold the universe together. So I think halacha is similar in that way uh, and can and has been translated in, in, in all of those uh, keys, right? You could think of halacha very narrowly as, you know, can you, uh, you know, mix these two things on Shabbat, right? You can think of halacha as the sort of, you know, the path, which is what the law, what the word truly means in the same way that Sharia means the path um, of sort of like, you know, the way God instructs. And what I, what I argue for in the book is that to think of halacha less as law, but as Torah or as Torah, which, um, you know, which, which, also a word that doesn't have an obvious meaning, but something like God's teaching and God's instructions, and that this is part of it. And that, to me, is the category that, that really captures it. And if you'll note, uh, when I said before that the, the obligation to study is not called the study of halakha, but it's called the study of Torah, Talmud Torah, and that that's the kind of meta-concept sort of holding it all together. Now, what goes in halakha is a whole bunch of, uh, sorry, what goes in Torah is a whole bunch of things. Uh, you know, basically, I think you know, anything authentically Jewish um, might even go in there. But certainly the legal takes up a large part of that. But, but uh, it's also it's it's but it's and it's also there's tons of narratives and things like that. Right. I mean, it's it's it's, you know, when we're reading Torah portions and in, 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 in uh, Shabbat or something, these are we're not just reading laws. We're reading oftentimes no. narrative stories about the people of Israel and the patriarchs and history. So that's. This is, I take it for one of your reasons why the, why, why this term law is kind of, a, kind of prejudicial because it, it, it certainly 
is at the heart of it and part of it, but there's a lot of other things a lot there. Of other now, in the in the mission in the Talmud, I would say that there's a there's some rebalancing. In other words, uh, like you said in the in the in the, in the, in the, in the five books of Moses, there's you know a lot of narrative and then kind of laws interstitially um, you know, put in there. One of the big differences, I would say, is that while in the Bible there's a fair amount of law, there's not a lot of legal discourse or legal dialogue. You know, it's not like, oh, he says this and he says this and let me prove you this and let me prove you this. And that's really the stuff that's very typical uh, of the Mishnah and especially the Talmud. Um, the other thing is that I think you would say that the framing of the Bible is narrative with the law is kind of inserted. I think when you look at the Mishnah and the Talmud, you would flip it. You would say the framing is legal uh, with Agadah, which is the word we use for kind of narrative and all the other stuff that's not so legal, but put together in the Talmud, um, you know, kind of interspersed now in the talmud itself these things are mixed up in in ways not so dissimilar from the bible uh and then as jews in the post-talmudic period in the early medieval and, and high medieval period tried to kind of derive legal codes from halacha uh, from the talmud they uh they disaggregated these two and in that way my book is part of a series of scholarship that's you know been around for you know, the last you know, 50 years, I guess you could say, that says, well, but the Talmud does put these together and we ought to think about why, we ought to think about how. And I try to give examples where it's not one or the other, but, you know, both and. Uh, if you recall, there's an example there about carrying uh, on Shabbat and carrying a sword. And there's a Mishnaic discussion about whether a sword can be carried on Shabbat. And what I try to show is that the Talmud itself understands that it's going to do two things now. It's going to, A, talk about, can you carry a sword on Shabbat? But B, it's going to talk about, well, why is that important? And immediately gets into, do we think the sword is an appropriate symbol? What do you think of militarism? What do we think of strength? What do you think of pacifism? What do you think of the messianic era and our ideals? Our ideals, one is bound by swords and war or by peace, citing Isaiah of turning the swords into plowshares. That all gets compressed into the Mishnah and then kind of spelled out in the Talmud. And I think it's having both these conversations, like you said, that one isn't, they're not separate. That the question of whether to carry a sword is a question about this big issue. And to me, that's just a great example of, of at least one way that Halakha talks. That, that, and that, that's in the way it answers Jesus. Because if you, if you only think of it as can he carry the sword or not, well, then his critique you know, can seem right. I mean, there can be answers to that too. But if you think of it as like, this is a way of discussing you know, what, 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 what he would call the weightier matters of the law, well then, well, then now you begin to see why the study of Torah and the study of law is so important because it's the access point into the rabbinic wisdom on these questions. And that's, that's one of the big theses of the book. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitkenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show.
And, and you could probably argue, right, that one of the things that makes that different than our normal conception of law is well, you could argue that implicitly the society's values are somehow expressed in, in law. Like, but again, especially in modern society, that's, that's very implicit, right? Like, and, and, and if it's too explicit, sometimes we're, we, we, it bothers us maybe that it's not pluralistic enough. But whereas for you're saying this is explicit, like it, 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 it's very much part and parcel. It's not tangential to the, to the thing or an add on it. It's at the heart of, uh, of what this is. Right. So I think that's a really good point. So because um, you said and 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 it's certain to say that, well, you know, when the Supreme Court decides certain cases, I mean, yes, it could be about some narrow blah, blah, blah. But, you know, in some ways it's about who we are as a country. And there's a way that law is always like that. Um, so so a couple points. So first, I think, you know, Europeans or non-Americans would 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 bristle at that. Uh, in other words, I would say that in this way, American law is probably closer to Jewish law and that we we tend to take our big national social issues and kind of refract them through law in a way in a way that is, you know, not so common throughout the the even the, the Anglo world and certainly the, the European world. Um, but there's another thing going on, which is, like you said, it's more explicit Um Precisely because for so many centuries, you know, rabbinic Jews at least didn't have other avenues, uh, or so many of them, you know, there wasn't so much of these separate discourses. I mean, there is a discourse of Jewish philosophy, but it's always competing with halacha. You know, there's, there's, there's not a lot of like Jewish art and literature that's, I mean, there's some, but, but again, it's always competing with halacha. And, and I think that that's part of what happens is that this becomes this kind of central master discourse that therefore has to do the job of, of all these others. But also, um, beyond that, that I think that there's a belief in there that, that the discussion of the actions should be connected to the kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of discussion, what is permitted and what is not, should be connected to the kind of underlying uh, questions that that brings up and to not separate it. Now, modern systems are scared and you, and of doing this, and rightfully so, I think, and you hinted at this, because law tends to be imperialistic, by which I mean, at some point, you're going to have to decide what are we going to do and then you're going to engage the community's sort of resources and, and, and power structures to enforce that. So, like I would say, to the, to the extent the question is, can X or Y be carried on Shabbat? You say, okay, that's a kind of fairly narrow question that can have a legal answer and that we can live with. The question you're asking is sort of like, who is man and how he ought to view himself? Well, that's not a question the law can really answer. I mean, you could try to give a legal answer, but it's not going to hold because that question is much deeper than the law. And that's why I think modern legal systems want to keep the law fairly small because what we want to say is we want a lot of pluralistic values to run around in society. And if we have to decide, as law does, we should keep that narrow. I think that's a reflex Jewish law doesn't have as much. Um, but as I also talk about in the book, there are places where you see the seams Kind of the stress on the seams of these things, because sometimes some questions are definitively answerable by some sort of decision by a rabbinic court or by, or even by a Talmudic discussion, and some are are recurring kind of you know questions that reign within human society and, and and people individually that that no legal conclusion can really tamp down. It can at best redirect it. I'm wondering, as someone who grew up and is an Orthodox Jew, modern Orthodox, and and you grew up. You know, in a, in a very observant context and with, you know, Torah study being a huge part of who you are. How does that shape? How does that part of you interact with legal scholar? Right. Because there's a lot you you probably you have a lot of friends that are legal scholars. I, probably most of them are not uh, modern Orthodox. Right. And, and have not had the same kind of formation around Torah study. I mean, how does that how does that shape you? And how do these two times kind of interact like how, how do they integrate <laughs> that's a good question because you're right and you know i write in the book a little bit that that one of the interesting things here is because again the jewish halakha is about a lot of different topics some of them that really only apply to, to judaism and jewish law laws of purity laws of kosher laws of the temple sacrifice but a bunch of them are not so dissimilar from what we study here in law school laws of contract tort property and I, I sometimes like imagine in my head, you know, suppose that that both on, on a certain legal topic, both Jewish law and American law have pretty much the same answer. Um, so am I doing Torah when I'm teaching that case in contracts? The answer is no to me. Um, and this is where you get your to kind of reference what you said before your community 
point because when you're studying Torah, you know, even if you're doing it by yourself, you know, it's with a certain text that kind of comes with a certain, uh, I would say, norm and tradition about how they're engaged and how they're studied and who else is studying them. And that becomes Torah. Uh, and when you're studying, you know, in your American law, even if it's substantively very similar, the overtones around it are very different. Because why are you doing this? Well, because we're training future lawyers and they got to know this to have because they're going to have clients who are going to have questions and, and, and whatnot, um, as opposed to in Judaism. That's not why we do. We do this because, you know, we, we believe that, you know, this is God's voice and he's talking to us and we're, this is how we, we communicate with him. And it's it's really amazing how that kind of overlay totally changes at least my experience of it, um, even if the substance is the same. Now, that's one answer. The other answer is, yeah, I was sort of brought up and, and everything about my early education was about being good at figuring out, constructing and deconstructing legal categories. And it's not surprising that I search for a profession <laughs> where, where those skills are in demand and valued. And, um, you know, I, I I don't know if I was born, you know, in a different place, whether I would have become a law professor, but clearly uh, I became a law professor, uh, I would say autobiographically, because of my fascination and interest in the questions that began, uh, you know, in the Beit Midrash, in the traditional uh, Jewish study house. It's interesting to note, like, before uh, Justice Gorsuch, I think that all the Supreme Court justices, I think, were either Catholic or Jewish. That's right. And it, it's interesting because then Gorsuch you know, becomes the first kind of Protestant. But it's interesting because they are two traditions. Although, right, he he his doctorate is from Oxford with John Finnis. Right, yes, of, he studied with, yeah, yeah. So so while he's not Catholic, you know, his, his, his intellectual biography kind of touches on, the, on, on that strand very tightly. And you think of like, because Catholicism is probably the branch of Christianity that has the most casuistry, the most legal study, you know, the canon law. So it's just interesting that, like you were saying, you know, your own formation through the imagine your imagination shaped by Torah, and how how it seems like Protestants probably don't have an imagination as shaped by legal theory and ethics as Catholics or Jews do. <laughs> well, right, and and you can even go further. Um, and here I'm skating at the edge of my knowledge, but uh, I'll reference back a conversation I had with a law professor at Harvard who is a, you know Protestant intellectual. Um, uh, about about kind of legal thinking in Protestantism, and I remember that uh, you know when I was there doing a fellowship, I I, I went and I talked to him about these kinds of questions because they were really interesting to me, um, particularly a religion or a whole religious culture that is, you know, um, not legal at all. Now for Jews, you know, our, our key is like, well, if they're not legal, that means they're not theologically rigorous because those things always go together. But that's clearly not the story in Protestantism. Um, and, you know, I remember asking him, well, I mean, like, don't you need legal answers to questions? So I said, well, okay. You know, so we went back and forth. And I remember I said, okay, I got an example. So you're going to have to have an answer to. I said, um, you believe in tithing, right? Uh, and he says, yeah. And I said, okay, but how do you know how much to tithe? Okay. Is it on the gross or the net? That's right. And, you know, that's, you know, the, there's a whole Talmudic tractate that basically asks those kinds of questions in its context. Is it gross? Is it net? What do you deduct? What do you, and uh, so I'm like, there's got to, right, you've got to deal with that. And he's like, mm, nope. More than you can handle, more than you think you should, was his, was his, you know, I asked him, like, how would your community, you know, answer this question? And, 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 and what was clear was that however they would answer it would not be with a legal rule. It would be with some kind of, you know, aspirational standard. And that was just fascinating to me because at least to a halachic Jew, that is such a counterintuitive way to engage uh, religious obligation. Um, and what I heard there was, you know, that, oh, okay. So like I said, me and you are kind of having a version of that conversation that Jesus and the Pharisees did. And here we are, you know, 2000 years later and, you know, 17 cultures away. And yet we're each kind of like drawing out these themes. And then you go back and read the gospel text, like, yeah, okay, I get it. And that was a really kind of telling moment because this wasn't some random guy. This was a law professor at Harvard who knew of law. Um, and but just you know it was very clear that 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 religious key and that religious expression uh, was really really different. Hey, it's interesting. One of the things I've I've learned from Jewish friends and colleagues that I think is interesting in contrast to Christianity. I feel like the connection between believing and belonging in Judaism is not quite a, as 
as strong like in certain kinds of christian communities if you don't believe the right things you're out like they'll tell you you're out you know but whereas whereas there's a little more range for beliefs especially theological beliefs it seems uh, uh, and you can still belong you know that that, that your that beliefs aren't aren't as as contingent you know I mean, your belonging isn't as contingent on 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 creedal profession as it is maybe certain kinds of christianity but but i wonder if somebody is not observant Based on sort of what you're saying, Halakha does. How, I mean, how much of Judaism are they going to get, right? Because it, it it seems like a lot of the meaning making, beliefs, everything, like community identity, is formed uh, through through Halakha, through Torah study. So, like, if you're kind of non-observant, I mean, you can't. You could imagine a Christian that still believed a bunch of stuff but didn't go to church much or something. But it seems like if you're not engaged. In the subject of your book here, you, 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 that your Judaism is going to be less meaningful, or you're going to get less the core of it, I would guess, right? Yeah. So there's there's a couple of things in what you said. Let's let's break that down a little bit. So so first, you know, Judaism and is, and this gets back to our modern categories versus pre-modern categories, right? Pre-modern, it, it, there was a community living within you know Christian Europe called the Jews, and you know figuring out whether it was a nation an ethnicity, a culture, a religion, it was like all the above, right? And then what happens is we start getting kind of nation states and modernity and the idea that you're a citizen of, let's say, France or Germany. Or So then we start asking these questions, well, what are the Jews? But I think the answer is that it's still uh, a mix of a of an ethnicity, of a culture, and of a religion. Um, and because of all that, you can, you can, you can, uh, maybe not score a perfect 10 on the religion side, but you're still part of the ethnicity and the culture. Uh, and that was certainly, you know, true. Uh, and maybe it's changing in a bunch of ways. Um, but, but that's kind of, I think a little bit why that happens. And the flip side to sort of what you said is that, you know, if someone keeps Shabbat and keeps kosher and lives in the community, um, they're not frequently asked, do you believe this theological premise or not? Um, I think it's too far to say that those don't matter. And I would say in the last 20, 30 years has been a sort of maybe a resurgence of saying, well, we ought to stress those and those things do matter. But as a leaving aside the doctrine, as a practical matter, right, there's plenty of people who live in an Orthodox community. Uh, sometimes they're called social Orthodox who, um, you know, who, who, who live by the kind of outward code uh, of, of, you know, contemporary Jewish life and are accepted as part of the community and, 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 People don't ask too many questions. Now, do they become the leaders of the community? Maybe not, but they're certainly, uh, certainly, um, you know, members of the community in good standing. I think that's right. So I think it's both. I think it's a fact of a little bit that um, it's not just a religion, right? It's it's a combination of a culture, ethnicity, nationality, and religion, and because of like you, the way you said uh, that there's a there's a sort of belonging is about practice. Um, and even in, in, in what's considered observant, um, you know, there are wildly different views on the state of Israel on, on, on Zionism or whether it's a good thing, that's a bad thing. Uh, you know, which, which is like a major theological question. Um, but, but that's not the defining question. The defining question is, do you keep Shabbat? Do you keep kosher? Um, and so I think that there's a lot of that there. Um, yeah, that, that's that's interesting. I mean, I think that that and it's interesting. Well, uh, sorry. Now let me let me answer your your other question about the. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that a Judaism that is not engaged in kind of the study of Torah, uh, leaving aside whether it's um, you know the right theology, I think like you said, you, you're just going to miss it because if all we could give you is a bunch of rules, uh, and you're not equipped to kind of attune yourself to the music that they that they produce and that lies underneath, uh, it's just going to seem like a bunch of rules. And then you're going to kind of come back to, and now you understand why I'm started with Jesus. Cause like, you're always going to, going to go back there. Now there are people that that works for, um, but, but um, you know, but it's going to be hard to kind of break through. Now, to be fair, I would say even today, there are communities um, that basically treat halacha as a bunch of rules and then invest their study in other parts, in Kabbalistic texts, in Hasidic texts, in moralistic texts. Um, and I think that, you know, that's certainly on the table. I would say that's not the focus of my book, but but if we kind of scan the environment, I would say that that's that 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 there's a bunch of people uh in those boxes who say these are the rules we live by and we draw meaning yes from torah for sure but not from uh i would say halacha in the more narrow sense 
the crisis of American Jewry, non-observant American Jewry that you're sort of alluding to, is 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 in part, I would say that by not having the cultural uh, IQ and the linguistic uh, ability to delve into classical Jewish texts, they're walled off from that. And uh, I think it's not surprising that you're seeing what you're seeing there. Um, for that reason. Now, there's more recently, and we're talking now 15 years or so, a, a movement to to say, it doesn't quite say it like this, but this is what it's saying, uh, Torah study is not just for the observant. Torah study is part of like the Jewish cultural patrimony. And there are versions of this in Israel, and there are versions of this in the United States. And uh, I think that that that's happening because people are realizing, yeah, you know, there's something really important here. And even if you're not going to buy into the full-on you know, observant theology. Uh, if you wall yourself off from this part of it, it's not clear what's left. There is. A, I read a review of your book uh, in the Times of Israel, and the, the reviewer says this. I, I mean, I, 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 this is just so well written. I wanted to share with you. You, you maybe you've read it because you, you know, if I wrote a good new book, I'd read all the reviews. But <laughs> um, no, says, I don't Google myself every day. He says, far from being the cold blade of Jewish law, this book eloquently shows how halacha is the Swiss army of Judaism, a Swiss army knife of Judaism, as halakha fills so many roles from legal, devotional, spiritual, culture, and much more. Each of halakha's paradigmatic forms represent a pole that exerts a magnetic force on the field as a whole. I, I feel like that does a good job of capturing what you're what the argument you're putting forth right? yeah right yeah definitely definitely and, you know the, the idea of the polls i kind of drew out in the book um and polls you know i think the magnetic sort of adds something important here because not just like there's two sides but that each side kind of has a force that's yanking it there right and and that's sort of what i think the complexity is because as soon as you state things as legal rules and as kind of you know, binding legal concepts. There's obviously going to be a pull. It's going to pull and try to suck everything into something that can be codified, regimented, and you know, kind of stamped out and mass produced. Um, but and and that's typically, I would say, the the law pull or the regulation pull. Uh, and my book says, of course, that's there. Um, and because that's there, and and that's a little easier to understand conceptually because it looks like things we're familiar with. Let's talk about that other pole, that pole of laws, devotion of laws, study, and try to at least give it some kind of contours. And you know, my, the, this book was not written to say anything that no one's ever thought of before, so much as to put in kind of, I hope, a clear way feelings that people have in their ambient experience. You know. The, the, so that that I hope that the reader that to me the ideal reaction to this book is not oh I never thought that but oh finally someone said that and that's kind of what I'm going for. Well, it's a great book, and I, I mean I would recommend it for um, Jew and non-Jew alike. Well, let, let me let me yeah. ask you a question. You know, for your yeah. audience, you know, it's like um, would 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 a religiously interested you know, lay reader who's not an expert in Jewish law, obviously, and, you know, who probably doesn't know much about legal theory or, or, or anything like that. How, how does this book hit them? In other words, uh, it's, well, it's inter- I mean, I think it's interesting because like, I mean, I think like you're saying, I mean, like, I think I would have had a sense because of my, you know, background in religious studies and things like that. And some ecumenical, I, w- I mean, I think I'd have an intuitive sense for your argument, what you're saying, but you're making explicit some, I, I couldn't, put into words right like that the judaism is 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 complex and torah is more than just i mean like these things but i i, I wouldn't it, it gave me a sort of a, a language and conceptual framework uh to make sense of of a gut feeling i i think i probably had but wouldn't have been able to sort of you know i didn't have the concepts uh and the history to sort of make make better sense of it you know sure does that make sure. sense no it does it does and i think honestly many uh many jews are are not in a radically dissimilar uh uh, exp- uh sense in you and and what about sort of understandability because one of the things i struggled in writing it is that i want it to be interesting and nuanced and um compelling to the expert uh and that you know not simplify things too much and slough off all the complexity but accessible you know it's not a beach read but but accessible to anyone interested in the kind of religious thought yeah no i absolutely think that's it's well written i think it's 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 something that if you're reflective but a generalist 
you could engage it. And, and I think also, what, I mean, what's, what's especially interesting for me is I think as we get into a pluralistic, more pluralistic society, right, where, where at least in, in the blue states and the coast, like inevitably things are getting increasingly more secular. I mean, that everybody has to, every religious person has to ask questions of religious identity and, and how that identity is formed. And that's one of the most interesting things about the book, as someone that's not Jewish, is to see how, uh, here's one modern way in a pluralist secular world that this translates, you know, mm-hmm. that here this history is brought to bear. And I think it, it helps you think, well, how does, how do other faiths do that? You know? And so, right. so, I mean, I think that for people, all people of faith, that's an incredibly important exercise. If faith communities will survive mm-hmm. in a pluralistic so, secular age. So, so that's interesting because, and it ties back to, to one of your early things, because while, you know, I don't think it's fair to describe, you know, Jewish society in medieval Europe is living in a plural secular uh, space, but it, it has a lot of experiences living as a minority when the majority disagrees with its theological premises and with its, um, with its core identity. And um, in that way, you know, and this is not something I really talked about or really thought of explicitly, but sort of riffing off what you're saying in that way, this idea of, of a religion grounded on Torah study and all that might be a, some kind of model uh, for now, in some sense, all religious believers have become a little bit like Jews. In other words, living in a place that the the, the dominant norms are not theirs. Um, and I've always thought that, uh, you know, especially here teaching in a, in a, in a Christian, a Catholic university, that there's there's something Judaism has to teach um, religions as a whole about what is, what is life like as a minority? How do you how do you succeed and, and even thrive? Because the the irony is, and I think I write this, is that um, all of the great, if maybe the Mishnah you can argue about, but um, certainly the Talmud and all the great codes and everything um, for, for thousands of years, all the classic works of Halakha are written in exile. And it's not until, you know, our generation, basically, that we now have the state of Israel. And, you know, you can debate back and forth whether that's exile or not. And people do. Um, but it's certainly different, um, you know, but, but that's how Halakha was created for the most part. Yeah, and it's interesting too because you think of the the origins of Christianity and Judaism in their early centuries, like after the destruction of the temple, is these they both uh, uh, develop in this kind of exilic, kind of minority state of mind. Now, after constant, you know, into the, the end of the third century, early fourth century, that changes for Christianity, and it becomes enfranchised. But but it had a similar DNA early on, where mm-hmm. it was you know where it was a, a very distinctive minority kind of community, and now again Christians. And the West are often finding themselves closer back to that, um, yeah. you know, experience. So, yeah. yeah, it makes your book, you know, again, another point of continued relevance. Great. Thank you. Chaim, thanks so much for doing this. And uh, I'll have, definitely have you back on again. Thank you, Scott. Great as always. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email. Or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Chaim for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Halakha, The Rabbinic Idea of Law. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, my friends, fare thee well.